Last week I told you that this Christmas season we'd be highlighting those virtues that are associated with the Advent candle. As you know, we've been lighting these Advent candles. It's kind of a tradition here at Rosedale Bible Church. If you haven't been around, we do this typically every year. And each of these different candles have kind of a virtue that we have attached to, to them. Last week we took up the topic of hope. In John chapter 1, verse 45, that was the, the passage that we focused on there, uh, Philip finds Nathanael and he says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And we use that passage, passage John 1, 45, to demonstrate how the Old, Tes Old Testament authors wrote about Jesus and how the birth of Jesus gives evidence of what we said was hope fulfilled, hope fulfilled. Well, this morning, we're going to take up uh, the virtue associated with the second Advent candle, which is that of, as I said, as, is peace, is the virtue of peace. And so in order to do that, I want to look at a passage in the book of Micah. Uh, in fact, if you haven't found your way there, you can open up to the book of Micah now. And although Micah is a very little book, it's a short book, it does pack a very big message and that message is a warning message. No surprise, it's typically warnings that the prophets are giving. The Lord raised up Micah along with the prophet Isaiah to warn Israel that if the people and their rulers kept disobeying the Lord, well, they would suffer destruction. It's the prophet's message. And the way that God would discipline Israel for their disobedience was to take a foreign army or to use a foreign army to destroy them. And this form of discipline from the Lord goes all the way back to the earliest chapters of the Bible and the first instructions given to the nation of Israel. In fact, if you're interested, you can go back and read in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. You can take some time and go back and read that, and there you'll read about how the nation of Israel would receive a blessing if they obeyed the Lord. That is, God would protect them and keep them in their land. But if they disobeyed Yahweh, if they disobeyed the Lord, well, the Lord would discipline them by taking a foreign army, a foreign nation, and having that nation, allowing that nation to come in and trample them. And then he would take the, the nation of Israel and he would remove them from their land. That's kind of the, the standard way that God disciplines the nation of Israel. And we see that at the end of the law, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. However, God never disciplined his people without bringing a prophet first. He would always bring a prophet and he would uh, use that prophet to call the people to change, to call them back to the word of the Lord. And that was Micah's task. That's what Micah was called to do. And so if you have your Bible open to the book of Micah, you'll notice the book, this book, is structured into three messages, three messages. Each of these messages begins with the word here. Chapter one, verse two you can look down and see it there. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. This is kind of the first message. Chapter 3, verse 1, again. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. The second message. And then finally, in chapter 6, verse 1, the third message begins. Hear what the Lord says. And so, if Micah were a preacher, which I guess a prophet is kind of a preacher, he was kind of a preacher, a preacher of his day, this book would contain a three-part series, a series with three different messages. That's the book of Micah. The first message is a direct warning that judgment is coming. In this section, Micah names numerous cities. He points out how those cities are polluting the entire nation, not unlike our day, According to Micah, there was rampant idolatry and covetousness all over in his day. And so these people took advantage of the poor and they benefited through illegal means. That's the first message. The, the, the last message, which starts in chapter 6, is a call for Israel to trust in their God, to trust in Yahweh. The sermon opens with a courtroom scene in which God calls the people forward for judgment. Although they confess their sins, there's this question about how they might make good for their sins. What are they to do to make good for the sins that they've committed? Of course, what was true in their day is true in ours, and nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away their sins. 
And so, God didn't want Israel necessarily to make up for their sins. That's not what he called them to do. What he wanted them to do was actually a very popular verse. Maybe you've memorized it. It's in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You can look down and see that. He has told you, it says, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is Micah's way, essentially, of saying that God doesn't want extravagant gifts. He doesn't want sacrifice. Really, what he wants is our heart. That's kind of what Micah is saying here to the people. God wanted the people's hearts. Well, the message that I want to focus on this morning is the middle one, the one that sits between these two. And we won't look at the whole message. We're just going to look at a part of that message. The second message is one of hope. In this message, Micah gives Israel a picture of the future. And this picture contains a promise that peace is in Israel's future, which again is the topic this morning, peace. And that peace will come through, you guessed it, a deliverer, a ruler that God would raise up to bring peace to the people. And that ruler would come from a trivial place called Bethlehem, which is what we read this morning, which Eli read to us so eloquently this morning. And so this morning we'll see how four promises, this is our big idea this morning, four promises reveal God's formula for peace. Four promises reveal God's formula for peace. And if you want a kind of a purpose statement to attach to that, if you're taking notes, well, we'll, so you might say, so that we might find peace this Christmas season. And so that is our goal this morning. Four promises reveal God's formula for peace so that we might find peace this Christmas season. We're going to start at Micah chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. That's how Micah begins this part of the prophecy. It shall come to pass in the latter days. This is a common phrase. If you're a student of the Old Testament, you read this phrase from time to time. It's a common phrase used by the prophets, and it's a clue to the listener. It's a clue to us that what is about to be said has something to do with the future promise of Messiah. It's, it's, he's speaking about a future promise, and it relates to Messiah, the deliverer that's going to come. Standing from our place in history, of course, we know that the latter days refers to that period of time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. That is the latter days. You remember Hebrews 1, 2, which is a verse I often quote, which, which speaks about in the past God spoke uh, through his prophet. But, in, but it says there in Hebrews 1, 2, in these last days he has spoken to us through his son, which is Jesus. And so the latter day period is the period between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming and the millennial reign. And central to that latter-day promise is the promise of a future kingdom, which is what we're going to see in this passage this morning. And that this gives us the first promise that reveals God's formula for peace. And so a future kingdom, excuse me, reveals God's formula for peace. This is the first promise. Micah speaks specifically about this promise in verses 1 through 8. Look at verse 1 again. We'll continue reading that. It shall come to pass in the latter days, he says, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Here we have a picture of a new Jerusalem with a rebuilt temple. And not only that, but it, it appears here that the geography has actually changed in Israel. God has adjusted the landscape somehow such that the mountain of the Lord, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, has been elevated. It has been raised up. And of course, before we kind of write this off as figurative language, the prophet Zechariah writes about topographical changes that will happen in the future uh, in Israel. When the Lord returns, listen to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. Zechariah 14, 4. On that day, this is speaking of the Lord's return, on that day his feet, Messiah's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies between Jerusalem on the east 
and the Mount of Olives shall be, it says, split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Both Micah and Micah here and Zechariah in chapter 14 envision a future Jerusalem with topographical changes that allow for this temple to be elevated, to be raised up from where it currently sits. And so it's no wonder that in verse 2, Micah writes, Come, well, and many nations shall come and say, verse 2, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For, or maybe better translated, indeed, out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, it says. We know God promised Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 3. Well, here we see one of the ways that this promise is fulfilled. It's through the sons of Abraham that the nations of Israel here, all the nations, learn how to walk in the law, they walk according to God's commands, walk or live according to the glory of God in this future day that Micah, Micah is predicting or Micah sees. And in verse 3, we see the effects of all of this, picking it up in verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations or for numerous nations far away. Here's the result. Micah says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall, shall they learn war anymore. The abandonment of swords and spears is a picture of total disarmament. Total disarmament. The perpetual arms race will come to an end. Combat training will be a thing of the past. If you're inclined to pack heat, you won't need to do that anymore, not in the future kingdom. The art of war will be replaced by the art of peace. How different is this vision of the future than the world in which we live? It's quite a different world. Jesus described our world, Matthew 24, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Even in our day, we see this. I mean, we know of two wars that we can think of right now that are going on. And these are the only wars that our media allows us to hear about. There are plenty of other wars that are going on as well, which we just don't know about. We know that whatever efforts in this world right now, whatever efforts might be made in this world to pursue peace, such efforts are made with a qualification because the world has been poisoned by sin and depravity and no lasting external peace, no lasting external peace can be found until the Prince of Peace, Jesus, returns to establish his kingdom fully and forever as we see here in this passage from Micah. Micah's picture of the future kingdom is colored in even more in verses 4 and 5. But they shall sit, every man, it says, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. This is kind of his way of saying now that's what they do. For each person walks in the name of his God. But we, he says will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. The vine and the fig tree are symbols of security, prosperity. Both provide abundant fruit. I have a fig tree in my backyard, and it's just amazing how much fruit comes from that fig tree. A vine as well. In verse 5, the prophet says, We walk in the name of the Lord. This we is the Jews and the Gentiles both Israel and the nations that have come together to worship the Lord. All have come to the mountain of the Lord. All will flock to the Lord. What can this picture of a future kingdom teach us about how to live today? 
if in the future God's plan, it is God's plan to teach us his perfect will, that's his future plan, to teach us his perfect will and that we would walk perfectly in his paths, if God intends to exercise perfect judgment and for us to pursue perfect peace as it is explained here, well, how then shall we live? What's our calling today? Should we, as God's people, pursue such kingdom virtues even now? Well, God's future promise of peace is always portrayed as a motivator for faithfulness in the present. It's always a motivator for faithfulness in the present. One example would be Titus 2. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. You can write that down and I'll read it to you. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared. Jesus has come. The grace of God has appeared. He is here. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live, he says, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Saving grace is sanctifying grace. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on and he says, Waiting... As we live these upright lives, we're waiting for the blessed hope, for Jesus to come again, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, God's future promise of peace is always portrayed as a motivator for faithfulness in the present. We don't just look forward to these things. We live now in light of eternity. That's our aim. It's by design that God has revealed his future kingdom as a formula for peace and for peaceful living. That we would fight, tooth, this is the goal, that we would fight tooth and nail against the flesh against the world and against the devil to proclaim and model the excellencies of his glorious future kingdom. We should look like that kingdom as much as possible here. This is why we're ambassadors of the king. In a sense, when people walk in this church, when they walk in this building, when they walk in our home, when they walk into a relationship that we have with them, they, they should enter into the kingdom as much as possible. Again, it's sin-stained, but this is our goal as we look forward to those future promises. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Looking again to the book of Micah, look down at verses 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, gather those who have been driven away. They have been put in exile, dispersed. He will gather them. And those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, verse 7, and those who are cast off, a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. In these verses, we see the nation of Israel depicted as weak, lame. They're scattered, they're wounded, they're a nation in exile, and they have no shepherd. Yet, God says, he will assemble the lame. He will gather them. He will make the remnant a strong nation. Although Assyria and nations like Assyria and Babylon may lay siege to Israel, as we'll see, the royal shepherd, capital S, the royal shepherd will rescue, gather, and restore them. The best is yet to come for the remnant of Israel. Verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, which is just a way of saying Jerusalem. O you, O Jerusalem, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Peace has been promised and your restoration will come is what Micah is saying. There's a second promise in verses 9 through 10. Second promise that reveals God's formula for peace and it's a future deliverance. A future deliverance. 
Micah starts this section with three rhetorical questions. Verse 9. Now, why do you, this is Israel, why do you, Israel, cry aloud, he says? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor, again, your king, perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Micah foresees a day here in which Israel laments the loss of their rulers. In verse 9, Micah pivots away. He's pivoting away from that future reign of Messiah, and he's pivoting towards the present dark realities before the nation. The loss of a king is a painful thing for any nation, but it's especially painful for the nation of Israel because so many of their promises are connected to that king. They long for that Davidic throne to be, uh, the booth of David to be set back up. They long for that, and so if there's no king on the throne, their future hope can't be there. And so it's especially meaningful for Israel when the king has been destroyed, when the kingship has been torn down. It just portrays, these rhetorical questions portray a helpless condition for Israel. Their king has been taken. We know both Jehoiakim and King Zedekiah were taken prisoner to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar even put Zedekiah's eyes out, which we'll see in a moment, before he took him into captivity. And so Israel is like a woman in travail. Look at verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, he says. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Israel is left in the open country. I don't know what you, you can imagine what it looks like to be in an open country when there's predators around. There's no shade. There's nowhere to, nothing to hide behind. There's nothing to prevent those predators from coming and taking you, killing you. This is the picture of Israel. They're vulnerable. They're unprotected. They're helpless. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. You can only run so long. There's something very interesting about verse 10. It was the Assyrians who were knocking on Israel's door in Micah's day, not the Babylonians. It was the Assyrians. Recall that the Assyrians defeated Israel, the northern kingdom. They defeated them in 722 B.C., and the Babylonians invaded Judah, the southern kingdom. Destroyed, they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and took thousands of people captive to Babylon between 606 and 586 B.C. And so, if you know, in the B.C. era, the numbers go down, right? And so, 722 is before 606 and 586. So, the Assyrians come into the northern kingdom. They destroy the Israel, what's called Israel in the Old Testament. And then 606 and 586, the Babylon, Babylonians come into the southern kingdom and they destroy what's called Judah in the Old Testament. Sometimes you read about Israel and Judah and it's confusing in the Old Testament. Israel is that northern part, Judah is that southern part, at least in the prophets. And so what's interesting here is that Micah was a prophet from about 750 to 700 BC. So he was a prophet during the Assyrian reign. The Assyrians hadn't yet been defeated by the Babylonians Yet, what does Micah say here? He speaks of Babylon taking them, or being, uh, he speaks of the Babylonians invading Judah. So this is roughly 100 years before that happens, Micah speaks to it. And so you read there in verse 10, that they'll dwell in the open country and shall go to Babylon. Well, how in the world would Micah know that they would go to Babylon? The Babylonians weren't even a, a major power in his day. It had to be from the Lord, right? The Lord had to give him this prophecy. He had to tell him these things. And so here we have Micah making a prophecy, a future prediction that Babylon would eventually defeat the Assyrians and they would be the ones that would come in and destroy Israel. And Micah even goes further. He tells us, there, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Notice that the deliverance won't come from Jerusalem. It will come from somewhere else. And he emphasizes it by using that word there twice. It's from Babylon that that redemption will come. 
You may have heard the Hebrew word goel, goel, gael. This is the word that is roughly translated as kinsman redeemer. Maybe you've studied the book of Ruth and you've read that word or discovered that word. God is a goel. He's a kinsman redeemer. Well, that's the word that is used here. There, that is from Babylon, you will be rescued. There, that is from Babylon, the Lord will redeem you. He will be there from there, your goel, your kinsman redeemer. This word is a picture that the Lord is a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. It's a picture of one who is obligated. He is an obligated family protector of his people. He is obligated as Israel's kin, kinsman redeemer to come to their aid. He must do it, which fits the, the overall picture of God in the Old Testament. I mean, God is a father. He is a father. God is a husband. God is spoken of as a husband, Isaiah 54. The Old Testament speaks of God who, of one, as one who redeems the property of Israel. He redeems their freedom. He avenges them against their enemies. God secures their posterity, their descendants for the future. In all of these ways, God is portrayed as a kinsman redeemer. How important it is for a, for a father to model God in this way. Imagine children that grow up in a home where, where, a, where a father doesn't take care of his children, doesn't protect his kids, training his, his kids in, in a, for a, giving them a picture of a, of a father that isn't like the father in the Bible, isn't like this kinsman redeemer that protects his people, protects his family. That's the God that's redeeming Israel. Even though they've been taken captive into Babylon, God is that kinsman redeemer that is going to protect and, and rescue his nation, his people. And so specific to, to these events, we know that God will actually do that through a different king, through a man named Cyrus. Cyrus gets some crazy idea that he's going to send all the people back to Jerusalem. And he does that. And so God rescues his people through Cyrus. So God is rightly called the Goel of Israel. And yet we know that the ultimate Goel, the ultimate kin kingsman redeemer, goes by another name. Does he not? Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Very familiar passage. It says, who, this kinsman redeemer, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born, it says, in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the ultimate Goel. He is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Every act of God as kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament is like a single tile in a mosaic. And all those acts collect and pool and are fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who came in the form of a servant, who was born in the likeness of men. It was Jesus who came first to bear the sins of many and who will return again, that Scripture says, the second time, Matthew, or excuse me, Hebrews 9.28 says, not to deal with sin. He will not return again to deal with sin because he did that the first time. He'll return to save those who eagerly wait for him. Yet, from Micah's day, in Micah's day, both of those advents are yet future. Both the first coming and the second coming. They're yet to come from Micah's vantage point. And so the picture we have of Israel in verses 9 through 10 is of a suffering nation. And yet that suffering will give way to joy. The labor pain illustration is, is significant. 
Although labor pains are difficult, there is joy to be found at birth. So Israel's travail will bring forth a day of deliverance. Thus, a future kingdom and a future deliverance reveal God's formula for peace. Verses 11 through 13, we find a third promise. We find that a future conquest reveals God's formula for peace. A future conquest. Remember again the verse where we started in chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Micah began by giving us a, a picture of a future kingdom. He looked way out into the future after the, the, the geography had been changed and the mountain of the Lord was lifted up and all the nations came and worshiped and learned the law of the Lord and glorified God. And we beat our, our implements of war into implements of peace. That was the first picture he gave us. It was one of Israel's domination, nations gathering together to worship God forever and ever. Verses 9 and 10, Micah adjusts the focus. He brings us back at least to his day, a period of time preceding those latter days in which Israel would be defeated by her enemies, which is what we just saw. Well, in verses 11 through 13, Micah is going to shift the focus again. And so now we're going to look further into the future to those latter days. He adjusts the focus forward, and his future is that his focus is those final conquests or the final conquest of Israel. Verse 11, now... Many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thought of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn, your, your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. And shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. The enemies of God oppose Israel, yet she will destroy them. Which is what 12 and 13 says there. God is a divine harvester in these verses. The nations that oppose Israel will themselves be pulverized. As he says here, beat in pieces. Israel is pictured as a goring ox with an iron horn and bronze hooves. These are symbols of strength and power, of endurance and hardness. This is a victory that Israel will have in the future, in the latter days. I think it's impossible to read a passage like this if we're studying our Bibles and, and, and to not think about Israel's current situation. It's, it's hard to read this and not think, how does this relate to Today. How does this relate to what's going on right now in the nation of Israel? Of course, unless you're living under a rock, you know that Israel's at war with Hamas as we speak. As we speak, they're leveling the Gaza. They're, they're raising it to the ground. Whenever there's a conflict involving Israel, these passages come to mind, and we wonder what the connection is between current events and passages like this in our Bible. Here are my thoughts, just very briefly. I don't believe it's right to see any of the current events, whether it's these that are happening in our day on the news today or the adoption of Israel as a nation in 1948 as the consummation of biblical events. It's not right for us to do that. We shouldn't read our Bibles into our news app or, if you're old school, your newspaper. As much as we yearn for the end, as much as we long and we yearn for the return of Christ, you and I have absolutely no way of knowing if such events will lead to the rapture, the second coming, or any future fulfillment of prophecy. We have no way of knowing that. We just sang a song that said 2,000 years. I know it's painful, but what if we have to change that song to 3,000 years? What if the church has to do that? Maybe. I don't know. None of us know that. It might be the case. The most we can say is this. We do know from Scripture that Israel will be a nation during the tribulation. We do know that. Whether it's the nation that they have now or this nation will be taken and there'll be another thousand years and another nation will rise up. We have no way of knowing that. But we do know they will be a nation. Daniel 9.27 says that halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist will make a peace treaty with the nation. And so they have to be a nation. 
But is it this nation? We don't know that. There's no way for us to know that. Thus, what you and I should be praying for, I mean, among other things, one primary thing we should be praying for is peace. Our, our, our Lord loves peace. Peace is a virtue. It's good. We are people of peace. We serve the Prince of Peace, and so we should pray for peace in Israel and peace in Gaza. We should pray for peace all over the world, in any region of the world. And when any region of the world suffers violence, we should pray for them. And it's right to pray for the imminent return of Christ. It's right to pray that the end would come and that God would right all the wrongs and that he would bring his kingdom, that his kingdom days would come upon us. It is right for us to pray that. It's good. It's his will and he wants it. And so we should pray that the Prince of Peace would return and make all things new. Now there is one final section here to uncover, to look at in this passage. One final section. We've looked into the future kingdom. We've seen the future deliverance and the future conquest. Well, finally we come to the future king in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5a. Let's read that now. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the, ju- the judge of Israel, the they there is Babylon. I'll explain this a little bit, but Babylon is striking the judge of, or the king of Israel on the cheek. But you, it says in verse 2, O Bethlehem Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the end of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The first verse here in chapter 5, verse 1, is kind of a bridge, moves from the previous section into this next section. In this verse, a siege is laid up against Israel, and the judge or the ruler of Israel is being struck with a rod on the cheek. Now, some commentators argue that this is Jesus that it's speaking of, but I don't believe that's true. I I think what Micah is doing here is he's speaking of those events found in 2 Kings 25, verses 1 through 7. These events are still future to Micah, but these verses contain a prophecy that is fulfilled when Nebuchadnezzar tortures, tortures Zedekiah. Listen to 2 Kings 25, verses 6 and 7. Then they captured the king. This is 2 Kings 25, verses 6 and 7. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. How horrible the thing. It killed his children in front of him. And they put the eyes of Zedekiah, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, cut his eyes out. They bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. The humiliation of this king is spoken of, I believe, in chapter 5, verse 1. And this humiliation stands in contrast to the greatness of the future king in verse 2, which is why he says, but you. It's a statement of contrast. But you, O Bethlehem Apaphra, You're too little to be among the clans of Judah. This title, Epaphra, distinguishes this Bethlehem from a different Bethlehem. This is the Bethlehem that belonged to the tribe of Zebulun. It was found in Judah, which is the southern region of Israel. And it was the birthplace, of course, of David. It was a special place. Although it was insignificant to Israel, it was too little to even be named. It was too little of a place to be named among the cities of Judah. Joshua 15, it's not named in there, that list of cities. It's not named in Nehemiah 11. John chapter 7, verse 42, speaks of Bethlehem as a village, which is why we sing, O little town of Bethlehem. 
It was a little place. It was insignificant. It doesn't even show up on the list list of cities. If you looked at your Google Maps, it wouldn't be there. Or you'd have to zoom in super far. I don't know. Micah tells us that the ruler of Israel will come from this little town, this little town. How fitting is it? How fitting is it that something so little and so weak might demonstrate God's perfect strength? It perfectly falls in line with everything we know about God. It would use a place like this to bring about Jesus, the greatest ruler that we could ever imagine, ever think about, came from this little place. And at last, here in this passage, Israel has its ruler. Its king is coming. Not a ruler like Zedekiah, nor any other king, but a ruler, it says, who's coming forth from old, from ancient days. Feinberg says this is the strongest possible statement of infinite duration in the Hebrew language. There's no stronger way that the author can speak of the timelessness of this, this ruler, that he was from, that he's forever, that he forever was and he forever will be. There's no stronger way to say it in the Hebrew. The Net Bible translates this, verse 2 translates it, whose origin are in the distant past, in the distant past. The old King James says, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Feinberg again, Those, these goings forth were in creation. He was there in creation. He, all those appearances in the Old Testament from the patriarchs, when the angel of the Lord appears to the patriarchs, there he is. That's the ruler. He's there. In all these moments throughout the Old Testament history of redemption, Jesus is there. And the New Testament, of course, makes it very clear that Jews understood that this verse was a prophecy concerning the birthplace of the Messiah. They understood that. And that's why we read about it. We read it in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. You remember this verse. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod, he inquired of them, where the Christ was, be to bo- was to be born. Herod questioned them. Where is this king? Where does he come from? And what did they do? The scribes and the Pharisees, they quoted this verse because they understood that Messiah, the ruler, was going to be born in Bethlehem. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they understood that the deliverer would come from Bethlehem. Interestingly, verse 3 tells us that Israel will be handed over. They will be handed over to their enemies before this deliverer comes. How fitting. We know this has happened. We know this did happen. She will have been given up to those enemies until she who is in labor gives birth, it says in verse 3. If this verse is speaking to the specific time of Jesus' birth, then it's likely a a reference to Israel being given up to the Romans, which I believe it is, until that time which she who is in labor gives birth. And this woman who's giving birth, this language that's used here, may be the nation of of Israel in general, or more more specifically, it might be a reference to the Virgin Mary, which Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. And so Isaiah had already given the prophecy in Isaiah 7 that a virgin would give birth. And so how fitting it is here that he also speaks of she who is in labor giving birth around this time when the deliverer would come. And then our passage ends with a description of Messiah's second coming in, verses, in verse 4. And it's a beautiful description. I'll read it again. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the end of the earth, and he shall be their peace. How beautiful a picture of God's future kingdom we're given in this verse. The Lord will enable this shepherd king to do his work 
and the promised ruler will carry out his ministry in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, his God. He will rule in the regal authority and power of Almighty God. And as a result, God's people will dwell secure. There will be peace. And I think the word peace is really a good summary. It's a great summary of all the Messiah aims to do in his coming, in the first and the second. It is a good summary word. In the context of Micah's prophecy, we've seen that Messiah will defeat Israel against their enemies. He will empower them to overcome their enemies. Messiah will destroy all the weapons of warfare. There won't even be any training for warfare. There will be no need of that. Warfare will not even be possible. Conflict is an impossibility in the kingdom. When the book of Matthew quotes Micah 5.2 and tells us that Jesus is the ruler in question, well, we're given an entirely new perspective on this passage and the Old Testament in general. Jesus is the promised deliverer. Jesus is the new shepherd of God's sheep. And it's through him that a life of security can be found. It's only through him that a life of security is found. Peter Craigie writes, quote, To those who feel shut in on every side, like the besieged citizens of Jerusalem who first heard these words, Jesus brings the prospect of deliverance and security. And that is the essence, he says, of the Christmas message. God brings peace and security. God has brought peace and security through the Deliverer, through Messiah Jesus. And no doubt this world is filled with trouble. Apostle Paul said the days are evil. You remember that? Whether we're threatened by the flesh, the world, or the devil, things are crashing about us. Look again at that last sentence of the text. And he shall be their peace. The Bible promises that this ruler from Bethlehem will be Israel's peace. The question for us is, this ruler from Bethlehem, is he our peace? Has he become our peace? Is he our peace today? Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Peace is ours through the work of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus gives his peace to all those who come to him by faith. We know this passage. We love it. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Peace. (laughs) Yes. And I will give you peace. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest or peace for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden, he says, is light. Warren Wiersbe wrote, whenever a prophet foretold the future, it was to awaken the people to their responsibilities in the present. Whenever a prophet foretold the future, it was to awaken the people to their responsibilities in the present. Bible prophecy isn't entertainment for the curious, he said. It's encouragement for the serious. There are a few more encouraging words than those found in Micah 5, 4. These are very, very encouraging words. A, a hope, a future promise hope for all those who have made Messiah their king, have accepted them and believed in him. Peace is promised to us. And so here is the essence of the Christian message. That through the birth of a Savior from a small, insignificant place, Bethlehem, God has secured for us the most wonderful promise. And that promise is real for all those who call upon Him. Yet there's one other thing which is important to this. Hebrews eleven six. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Yes, we have to believe in him, but God wants us to believe in a reward. 
He wants us to look forward into the future and see this future wonderful promise that he has offered to us. This kingdom that's out there that we're a part of. We're, we're, we're those nations that, that climb up to see that temple and to worship him and to praise him in all of his glory and all of his splendor. God wants us to see that and to grab on to that promise. He wants us to see him as a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith involves belief in grace today, but it, it, faith involves belief in future grace, in those future promises that God offers us. We must believe in the reward. And so four promises reveal God's formula for peace. Why? So that we might find peace this Christmas season. And so how, how can you find peace? Well, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have peace. I mean, that's the gospel. The, the problem with us is that there's, we, as we like to say, there's enmity. There's a struggle. There's a conflict between us and God. Our sin. We cannot stand before the righteousness of God. He is perfect. We're stained. And so we need cleansing. And so Jesus came and he died on a cross. He lived a perfect life. So all those who would believe in him could take his death as theirs. He died a vicarious death. He died in our place. And our sin is nailed to the cross. And so that's the only way to find peace with God ultimately spiritually is that you have to believe in him, trust in him with your life. As Jonathan Edwards said, throw yourself upon Christ and then you'll have peace. And that enmity, that, that dividing wall will be broken down and you have access to God. It's a free gift. All you have to do is trust in him, believe in him. If you don't have that peace, then you don't know Christ. You don't know God. There is no peace in your life. But there is another peace that we should believe in. And it's simply that, and it's simply understanding that God is a rewarder that we can look forward to that Prince of Peace and see that he has promised us peace in this place, this future kingdom. And this is the aspect of God's plan that's found in Micah 5, that we shall dwell securely. Do you want to dwell securely? I do. And so this is peace, peace promised. Amen?